Welcome to the Inside the Boards podcast, the podcast dedicated to helping you learn to think like a question writer so you can study smarter, not harder, and succeed in medical school. And now here's your host, Patrick Beeman. Welcome to the Inside the Boards podcast. I am Patrick Beeman, founder and now less often the host of uh, this show. This episode is going to be a little different. These questions are adapted from Amboss, so we thank them much for giving us the permission to use these. All right, so the way I'm going to do this today is basically to say a comment about whatever the topic that we're going to discuss is and then attach a question to it for illustration purposes and plan to cover today the four general you know, principles or four basic principles of medical ethics, which have been ensconced in professional ethics reviews and, and thinking for the past several decades. These come from two scholars by the name of Tom Beecham and James Childress. And sometimes you see their names referenced. So fun fact, it is not Beauchamp, which is how it's spelt. It's Beecham. If you ever want to uh, impress your bioethics people who are in the know in the ethics realm. All right. So the four principles. I'm going to try to remember to do this according to the schema of read the interrogative, then the vignette, then the answer choices. Sorry if I forget, because I often do. All right. So we're being asked to decide which of the following ethical principles is most important to consider in establishing a patient's eligibility for treatment services. A local community recently received a settlement from a class action lawsuit brought against a pharmaceutical company. The judge found the company responsible for the harm caused to the community due to an increased burden on its public health services and the financial damages resulting from a large number of opioid-related crimes, hospital admissions, and overdose deaths. The company is ordered to pay damages to the community who plans to use the funds to establish a free clinic to provide comprehensive medical treatment for patients with opioid use disorders. However, the amount received from the settlement is not enough to cover enrollment of all patients in the community who are eligible for treatment services. So which of the following ethical principles is most important to consider in establishing criteria for the patient's eligibility for treatment services? And the choices are A, fidelity, B, autonomy, C, justice, D, beneficence, or E, non-maleficence. And the correct answer here is justice, the principle of justice. So philosophers would distinguish four senses of justice, distributive justice, procedural justice, retributive justice, and restorative justice. The latter two, retributive and restorative, you think of restorative as like giving back the things stolen, retributive justice as ordering somebody to pay for damages caused by some act of, of harm. And then procedural justice can be thought of as, like I said, due process, or I think you can think of it as like fairness in treating the individual patient before me. And then distributive justice can be thought of as being fair in allocating resources to 
a group or class of patients. You don't really have to worry about retributive or restorative justice really in, in healthcare. It's more procedural and distributive justice. So the difference between distributive justice would be like, say, who gets a COVID vaccine? It would be people who need the most to be protected against that particular virus, right? And criteria are set up that allocate the limited supply of those vaccine doses to those who have the most need, right? Now, if the procedural application was a patient comes to you and is like, hey, yo, I want a COVID vaccine. And you're like, all right, so if you have $100 to pay for it, you will get it. But if you don't, you don't. That would be a failure of procedural justice and would lead to inequality based on things that should not be considered in healthcare, such as the patient's ability to pay. Well, not, excuse me, not should not be considered in healthcare. In healthcare, they can be. That is fine at the systems level, at the societal or group level. But when it comes to one to one patient interactions and the relationship that you have individually with a patient, there should not be a preference for those who have greater means, right? I hope that's clear. But in any case, you probably don't have to worry about it because I highly doubt you would have to distinguish between distributive or procedural justice. But what I'm saying is essentially these distinctions do exist. And on the off chance that you had to know more about justice than just the word and that it essentially means fairness in the allocation of resources, then at least you have some idea that there is a distinction amongst types of justice. So the correct answer being justice there. The incorrect ones were fidelity. So this would be a more derivative principle that we have a fiduciary responsibility to act in a person's best interest. I would say it's derivative because it's it's really contained within the concept of beneficence, which was choice D, and that is to, you know, do good, do something positive, something that is good for them. Choice B, autonomy. Autonomy is probably the ethical principle that we have the most challenge with, especially in answering like test questions. It's the right of a patient essentially to make free choices. And what's a good example of this? I would say vaccine ethics also, you know, should people be coerced or, or forced to take a vaccine for the good of the public health when they don't want to? I'm not really sure that that is something that would be asked in the context of a, you know, licensing exam. The argument could be made that you could at a societal system or greater level than at the individual doctor-patient relationship compel a class of people to receive a vaccine for the good of the public health against their will in in some sense. So for instance, if you don't receive the COVID-19 vaccine or the flu shot, then you can't work at this facility. The general trend, I would say, is to respect autonomy is going to be an answer that is correct more often than not, because 
probably because doctors have traditionally not been good at doing that. But you should know, autonomy is not absolute. These principles do conflict, and sometimes autonomy gets trumped by some other of the principles. I guess we can, uh, well, I'll leave that there because there's more to be said about autonomy in the context of capacity or decision-making capacity. So let's move on to some communication topics. On the boards, a lot of questions on ethics will be framed in terms of communication. So a common interrogative will be, which of the following is the most appropriate response? Some kind of variation on that. And in general, the most important thing to remember here, the most appropriate initial response by a physician in the context of ethics and communication questions is going to be whichever response is open-ended. And if there are multiple open-ended responses or questions that are answer choices, then you're going to be looking for the one that first invites understanding or greater knowledge sharing, if you will something that clears up misconceptions. So next question, which of the following is the most appropriate initial response by the physician? A 67-year-old man comes to the physician, doesn't take any medications. He drinks six to seven beers every night, often requiring a shot of whiskey in the morning, quote, for my headache. He was recently fired from his job for arriving late. He says there's nothing wrong with his drinking, but expresses frustration at his best friend who no longer returns his calls. Again, which of the following is the most appropriate response by the physician? Just to break down this vignette, what's relevant in approaching ethics questions? Probably one of the first questions that you should be asking is who is the decision maker? Appropriate decision maker is the patient here himself. There's no indication that he needs a surrogate or is not free, does not have capacity to make his own decisions. So a 67-year-old man, we know that he has an alcohol use disorder, looks like he's had negative consequences in his life and has withdrawal symptoms from the amount of alcohol that he drinks each day. There's a difficulty in insight, if you will. He says there's nothing wrong with his drinking, but there's also some tension here. He expresses frustration that his best friend no longer returns his calls. So you have a problem, excessive drinking. You have a patient who doesn't think there's something wrong, but is able to offer a consequence or several consequences that are negative as a result of the putative problem. So this question is really about how do you deal with somebody who is resistant to change? And so our answer choices for the most appropriate response, A, I'm sorry that your friend no longer returns your calls. It seems like your drinking is affecting your close relationships. B is, I'm sorry to hear you lost your job. Drinking the amount of alcohol that you do can have very negative effects on your health. C, I'm sorry that your friend no longer returns your calls. What do you think your friend is worried about? Or D, I'm sorry that your friend no longer returns your calls. Do you feel that your drinking has affected your relationship with your friend? All right, let's break actually these down one by one. So most appropriate response choice A was, I'm sorry that your friend no longer returns your calls. Seems like your drinking is affecting your close relationships. 
this sort of statement is very likely to lead to the patient responding in a defensive manner because we already know he does not believe his drinking is causing problems, right, in his close relationships. So although the first part, I'm sorry that your friend no longer returns your calls, is an empathic response, it's that second sentence, it seems like your drinking is affecting your close relationships. That second sentence is simply telling the patient that drinking alcohol can have a negative effect on their health or relationships, and that's unlikely to motivate a patient to change their behavior. They'll become defensive if they don't believe there is a problem. So for my part, I would rule this answer choice out because it is a closed statement. So we're going to say that one's incorrect. Choice B's, I'm sorry to hear you lost your job. Drinking the amount of alcohol that you do can have very negative effects on your health. Honestly, this just seems like the the same sort of statement. You have an empathic response, but it's tied to something that is a closed statement. And it's not going to bring them to what in the trans-theoretical model of change is somewhere from pre-contemplation, which is where this patient is at, to a state of contemplation. So I think we can rule that out. But really, again, we can rule it out because there's an answer choice here that is inviting, opens up a conversation with the patient, whereas this one and choice A do not do that. Choice C was, I'm sorry that your friend no longer returns your calls. What do you think your friend is worried about? So that's a good candidate because we have the empathic statement and then we have an open-ended question. What do you think your friend is worried about? But at the same time, choice D has, I'm sorry that your friend no longer returns your calls. Do you feel that your drinking has affected your relationship with your friend? So I think we're going to be basically between these two choices. So how to distinguish them? They're both saying, I'm sorry about this thing you're concerned about. So we're not going to be able to choose this because one response is more empathic than the others. And it is the nature of the second sentence here, I think, that makes it clear that choice C is preferable and is the correct answer. So, I'm sorry about your friend not calling you. What do you think your friend is worried about? Think of the types of responses that could elicit. Like, if somebody asked me that, and I was this patient in this vignette, I'd be like, I don't know. I think maybe he's worried that I'm going to get liver disease. Or maybe he's worried that because I'm drinking, I lost my job. Or, you know, there's a whole range of responses that are not just yes or no. Choice D, it's it's open in the sense of it being a question, like it invites the patient to make a response. It's a closed-ended question. Open-ended questions, empathic responses, those are going to be the ones that are correct if you're able to find one answer that is all things being equal that has those features in a ethics question. So D, I'm sorry your friend no longer calls you. Do you feel that your drinking's affected your relationship with your friend? It invites a yes or a no response. So you can't really go anywhere with that. The question in choice C, the correct one, what do you think your friend is worried about, is not a yes or no question. In summary, the principle, when it comes to patient communication questions, 
especially in these motivational interviewing type scenarios. Your goal is to be empathic and to invite more dialogue with patients who are in the pre-contemplation stage. All right, so keeping with that question of communication, we have a 50-year-old man who has hypertension, comes to the physician for routine follow-up, blood pressure is mildly elevated, the physician recommends lisinopril, and the patient says, no, my blood pressure is just high when I'm anxious, and requests alprazolam instead of lisinopril. Which of the following is the most appropriate initial response by the physician? Okay, so going back to the vignette, we've got a 50-year-old man who is the decision maker. He has a problem, hypertension. His doctor makes a recommendation to treat that problem, lisinopril. The patient has a different perspective, if you will, on the cause of his high blood pressure, which is anxiety. And because of that, the patient wants to be treated with a specific medicine, alprazolam, which is a benzodiazepine that has a lot of dependence and abuse potential and can really set people up for having a substance use disorder. So all of that should kind of be going on in your mind when you get to the interrogative, which of the following is most appropriate as an initial response by the physician. So our choices here are A, I would recommend fluoxetine because alprazolam can cause dependence. Choice B, I would recommend consultation with a psychiatrist. Choice C, anxiety can cause temporary spikes in blood pressure, but it does not cause long-term increases in blood pressure. Or choice D, what have you heard about the use of alprazolam to treat high blood pressure? In this one, choice D is the correct answer. What have you heard about the use of alprazolam to treat high blood pressure? I think this kind of satisfies that twofold algorithm I mentioned before. Essentially, respond empathically and respond in a way that invites further dialogue. So, A, I would recommend fluoxetine because alprazolam can cause dependence. That doesn't treat the patient's hypertension, so it doesn't really address the issue at the center of this clinical encounter, at least from a biological standpoint, which is this patient's high blood pressure. So that's not going to be the correct answer for that reason, but also because in the rest of the selections here, this is a, a declarative sentence. It's, it's not a question. It's not an interrogative sentence that invites further dialogue. So I'd rule it out based just on that. Same goes with choice B. I would recommend consultation with a psychiatrist. That doesn't address the patient's concern, which is the anxiety or which is the, say, desire to get alprazolam. Those are concerns of the patient, and that's what we're supposed to be addressing. If the patient isn't concerned about the thing that we know is a concern, then the job is to enter into a greater dialogue. So choice C, anxiety can cause temporary spikes in blood pressure, but it does not cause a long-term increase in blood pressure. Education's important in the clinical you know, encounter, but when you have choice D, what have you heard about the use of alprazolam to treat high blood pressure? This one is not a good response. 
I'd say it's the most attractive distractor, but the physician would want to explore like the patient's understanding of the illness, anxiety, and his thought process as to why he requested alprazolam. So, you know, check your biases at the door because somebody who requests a specific medication might not be requesting it for the reason you impute it to them. So, in this case, it isn't necessarily true that if he's requesting alprazolam or any patient is doing that, that they are trying to control the clinical encounter, that they are drug-seeking, as they say, and which we should probably not say. So you, you need to understand it. So the response, what have you heard about the use of alprazolam to treat high blood pressure? This one is the open-ended conversation starter which invites a dialogue about the patient's knowledge of the drug and thought process for requesting it. So, principle on this type of question, a patient requests a specific medication, you're looking for an answer that begins an open-ended conversation to explore the patient's understanding of that, that medication, that condition, and the thought process behind how to treat it. So, choice D is correct. All right, so let's try another one. Which of the following is the most appropriate response to this patient's request? 27-year-old man has a history of cocaine abuse, and he comes to the physician two weeks after undergoing a successful arthroscopic repair of a torn medial collateral ligament in his left knee. No complications from the surgery. He was discharged with prescriptions for oxycodone and acetaminophen. Complains of severe pain that prevents him from participating in physical therapy and wakes him from sleep. Physical examination of the knee shows a healing incision and is otherwise normal. When the physician recommends the switch to ibuprofen for pain, patient becomes angry and demands a refill of oxycodone. Which of the following is the most appropriate response to this patient? All right, so... Here, you got a 27-year-old man who's the decision-maker. Relevant history includes recent knee surgery and cocaine use, but his physical exam is fine, and the physician makes an appropriate recommendation, which would be switching from the acetaminophen to ibuprofen for pain relief. The patient becomes angry and demanding, so now we're trying to figure out how do we respond as doctors. A. Prescribe a long-acting opioid for better pain relief if he's willing to sign a pain contract. Choice B, request further information about which drug he has taken recently and in the past. Choice C, request consent for urine testing to assess current drug use. Or choice D, prescribe a short course of oxycodone and schedule a follow-up appointment in one week. So how do you respond to a patient who is angry and demanding a controlled substance? So would you prescribe a long-acting opiate for better pain relief if the patient's willing to sign a pain contract? I would say no, this is not correct. Pain contracts, their goals to ensure that patients are taking opioids exactly as prescribed. And it's reasonable to consider this for patients who are on chronic opioids, you know, for pain, chronic pain. But before doing something like that, you would want to make sure the patient doesn't have an opioid use disorder. 
because he's got risk factors, namely a known history of cocaine use. And so I'd rule this one based on the fact that you haven't adequately ensured that prescribing him an opioid would not cause him greater harm. That's how I'd put it. All right, so choice B, request further information about which drugs he's taken recently and in the past. This one is the correct answer. So why? So you have a patient as, quote, drug-seeking behavior, and yes, that does suggest that he's at risk of misusing other controlled substances, but the first response is, well, let me put it this way, the reason why you wouldn't give the opioid that he requested needs to not be rooted in prejudice or cognitive bias. So if you're requesting further information about which drugs the patient's taken in the recent past, what are you doing? You are treating the potential cocaine use disorder as a medical problem. You are also inviting a greater conversation with the patient, which does one thing. It respects his autonomy. I often will ask patients to whom I'm going to give opioids before I prescribe them, like in a post-op C-section context, like, do you have any history of an opiate use disorder or concerns about like me giving you a prescription for, you know, oxycodone, for instance? And I just realized that that would be a yes or no question. <laughs> but but the, the, the point there is to ensure that you're not going to do harm to the patient by giving them an opioid, which is a medication that is fraught with uh, risks that other medications aren't. And you know how helpful it is to a patient to have that question asked to them, even if they have a history super helpful. They'll realize that they don't have to be embarrassed because I've actually had a patient be like, you know, I did actually five years ago have a problem with opioids and I've been clean that long, their words. And I don't really want opioids because of that. But then I had to prescribe some to her because she had bad pain. They couldn't be controlled with NSAIDs. And I think what happened was essentially we talked about how to ensure that the prescription wasn't misused. And that involved like, you know, having a family member, I think, hold the medication and give it to her as scheduled. And so, yeah. All right. So choice C, request consent for urine to assess current drug use. You should request consent for urine drug testing. You should not be getting urine drug tests to catch patients as like a, aha, got you. You know, you're not trying to like find out if they're lying. If your attitude is objective and rooted in the ethics of our profession, which is, you know, respecting autonomy, doing good for patients, avoiding harm, and treating them with fairness, then you're going to get much more mileage out of non-judgmental questions about substance use, essentially. So think about this scenario. In this case, you request to the patient, he's like demanding this prescription. You're like, all right, give me a urine sample for other drugs. And he's going to, number one, probably have opioids in his system because he's been taking them for the knee pain. All right. You know he has a history of cocaine use. 
So let's say either of those are positive. Well, then you haven't really done anything that's going to be helpful or change what you know or could add to your decision to comply with that request. At least I would argue that because, you know, somebody might not use cocaine for like a day or two and it could be out of their system. And in in that case, you know, like if if they use cocaine three, four times a week and you catch them at a time when their urine drug testing is is negative and that's your criteria for giving a patient with this known problem some other controlled substance, that's like totally inadequate. And then uh, choice D was prescribe a short course of oxycodone and schedule a follow-up appointment in one week. Well, this one, definitely reasonable for patients who require additional pain treatment, but it's not always reasonable. And in a patient who has a substance use disorder, giving them that prescription might actually cause some harm. So the substance use disorder and potential issues surrounding that should be addressed first. So choice B, requesting further information about which drugs he's taken in the past, is the best response here. Final one for this section. Classic interrogative is which of the following is the most appropriate response by the physician? So we have a 22-year-old man, comes to the emergency department, brought there by his friends about 30 minutes after falling downstairs. He was at a party. His friends say he drank lots of alcohol. The patient is aggressive and restless. He has tenderness to palpation and swelling over his right lower extremity. X-ray shows a lower tibial shaft fracture. The physician recommends overnight observation and surgery for the morning. And the patient refuses the suggested treatment and requests immediate discharge. Otherwise, he says he will call his lawyer and sue the entire medical staff involved in his care. Which of the following is the most appropriate response by the physician? So, choice A if you don't consent to treatment, I'll be forced to obtain consent from your parents. Choice B you can leave the hospital after signing a self-discharge against medical advice form. Choice C, please let me know if you would agree to one of the alternative treatment options. Or choice D, I understand that you want to go home, but I'll have to keep you here as long as you are intoxicated. All right, so this one's, I would say this is a pretty tough one. So you're trying to determine capacity here. And what is capacity? Capacity is essentially a, a patient's ability to make a choice. So this is rooted in the principle of autonomy, but patients have a right to that autonomy even if their decision is deleterious. We can't do something bad to them, but if they want to do something that causes bad to come to them and they're making that decision freely, then we have to respect that. So autonomy, though, is only possible when a patient has the ability to make decisions which require a couple of things. So understand the medical diagnosis, how serious it is, what the consequences could be with treatment or without treatment or amongst multiple treatments. Number two, you have to understand the recommendations or proposed treatment and the alternatives and the risks and benefits there, too. 
and you have to have a a firm decision, can't be wishy-washy, and then you can't have ongoing like psychosis or impairment, delusions, hallucinations, being on a medication that would affect decision-making capacity or lead to impulsivity or something of that nature. And then you also have to be of the age of majority, or better put, you have to be able to legally give authority to consent or refuse treatment. So if you don't have that authority, then that patient doesn't have decision-making capacity. So in other words, when, when approaching questions of capacity, the first question is, who's the decision-maker? If the patient is impaired, intoxicated, a minor, has a court-appointed guardian, has not had the right to make such decisions taken away from them legally, then that patient is the decision maker. After you got the decision maker decided and you're asking, does the patient have capacity? You're asking, am I able to functionally determine that this patient is capable of making a free decision about their medical care in this particular circumstance? should be distinguished from competency or competence. Competence, competency, those are legal terms, and it's the ability of a a person to participate essentially in legal proceedings. So we are never determining competence. A lot of review books get lazy and will use competence when they mean capacity. I don't actually know that this has much implication in taking a board exam because they're not going to make that confusion. The only, I guess the way I think it could show up is in terms of definitions, like distinguishing those two things from one another in a vignette. I just can't at the moment think of uh, how how a vignette would present this. But at any rate, so capacity is really a determination you're making all the time in a clinical encounter. You're always evaluating a patient's ability to make decisions. And it's, you know, the matter how in-depth you have to go is case by case. And it depends on, you know, like how serious the illness is, the patient's functional status, the patient's goals, the, the clinical setting, and a number of other factors. And remember that An assessment of capacity is valid only at a specific time, place, and in a particular situation. It's more like a snapshot in time, and you can't apply it to other situations. So, for instance, a patient with a history of dementia does not automatically lack capacity. At the time of an assessment thereto, they might be lucid and able to participate meaningfully in the discussion which could indicate their capacity for decision-making in the present moment. But two weeks later, same patient gets disoriented, can't answer questions, is unable to demonstrate understanding of what's being told to him or her, then that patient might not have decision-making capacity at that point. So similarly, an intoxicated patient may be temporarily impaired, and until the individual is sober, be unable to make reasonable and sound medical decisions. So in summary, in a medical setting, patient will demonstrate capacity by having four things, all right? They understand the information relevant to whatever decision is is there. They understand the information. They, two, 
have the ability to weigh the risks and benefits and to weigh in on alternative treatments. Three, they can clearly communicate their decision. And four, they're consistent throughout the whole decision-making process. You mainly determine, you know, like formal definitions of capacity. This is not the province of psychiatry. This is the province of every doctor. But these formal, or ought to be at least, these formal determinations of capacity often follow like essentially a, a mental status exam, which is probably too much for like the second years. But for others, you know, you're looking at appearance and behavior. You know, if someone's disheveled, they appear agitated, that might raise a question about their ability to make free choices or having decision-making capacity at the moment. Their motor activity, so if they're pulling out their, their IVs and in, in obvious pain and writhing around or having a seizure, they may lack capacity then. Their speech, so if it's slurred, obviously, in the case of alcohol intoxication, you, you can have impairment in speech, which might be an indication that they uh, have an impaired ability to make decisions. Their mood, their affects, their thought process, if they're tangential, jumping from one topic to another topic without any clear connection, their thought content, if they bring up like that they're seeing things or hearing things, if those things are relevant to that decision in question, then they may lack capacity. Perceptual disturbances kind of goes towards thought content, their sensorium, their level of alertness, whether they're hyper or vigilant or you know, kind of like uptunded, their cognition, you know, do they have adequate attention? Can they participate in a conversation? Their insight, if it's extremely poor and they're unable to relay understanding, and then judgment. So if leaving the ER for a life-threatening illness seems like the best course of action, that could you know, indicate impaired judgment. And, and so that's why we determine capacity. It may be a poor judgment in our mind, but if the patient understands it, can weigh the risks and alternative, can communicate it clearly, and they're consistent about it, then they can make that decision. So the answer choice here is the final D. I understand you want to go home, but I'll have to keep you here as long as you are intoxicated. This patient's intoxicated, capacity is impaired, so he's unable to give consent or reach an informed decision about his treatment and should therefore be kept at the hospital until sober. The other choice you can leave after signing an AMA form. So the, this patient lacks capacity. So that patient can't say, oh, I understand against medical advice that if I leave, this bad thing will happen to me. So it wouldn't be right to let the patient just, you know, leave. Like, here's a form. The other choice was, please let me know if you'd agree to one of the alternative treatment options. So you absolutely should inform patients about the alternative treatments, but this patient's intoxication reduces the decision-making capacity and that ability to fully understand the consequences of his condition and to consider the treatment alternatives, which is part of, you know, the requirements for capacity. So because he just basically doesn't have capacity, the correct answer is, I have to keep you here as long as you're intoxicated.
All right, that's it for today. Go download the Audio QBank app by Inside the Boards. And by the way, if you go to our website to sign up, insidetheboards.com, of course, that's actually the cheapest way um, to get access to our uh, premium subscription for the Audio QBank app. So if you're so inclined, you can save a few dollars going that way, including if you get a subscription longer than 90 days, there's actually a massive discount and you can select the exact date after 90 days that you want it to end which was sort of my way of, I guess, uh, recognizing that you guys are short on cash. We're trying to help you out, help us out. We really appreciate you listening and telling your friends and happy studying.